address When the machines became teens They found better things to do Like hang out at the arcade With the machines ditching school They listened to loud rock music Dressed to fit in Those were the days When the machines started living When the machines woke up Hey, Crispin here before we get into today's extra crispy conversation, uh, I just wanted to give a quick plug for my new full-color hardcover children's book that uh, we just launched a Kickstarter campaign for. Uh, this book is actually based on the song that just started at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, I wrote this song couple of years ago when I was in a pretty prolific songwriting period for uh, the songs for my Following Branches album. And when I originally wrote the song, uh, it had so many lyrics that I wasn't even thinking it was going to be a song. And I actually thought initially, like, maybe I'll do a children's storybook. Uh, but ended up turning into a song and I kind of put that on hold, but revisited it a few months back with the help of artist Rachel Pace and she came up with a storyboard and some characters and I was like oh this is so awesome so I'm excited to announce that the the project has launched we've we've got less than 30 days to get this thing funded it's all or nothing (laughs) and if if you are a parent or a grandparent or if you're just a person that has friends with kids there's no cooler gift you can get them than their own signed autographed copy of When the Machines Woke Up. So you can head on over to Kickstarter and pre-order your copy today for only 25 bucks, which includes shipping, and it's going to be signed and autographed by myself and Rachel Pace. Woke up. They contemplated living through philosophy and poetry to find some kind of meaning and all kinds of deep emotions and feelings they'd evoke. Those were the days when the machines first awoke. Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. Well, in this episode, uh, I sat down right here at Crispy World Headquarters in Abita Springs with author, speaker, Jonathan Martin. For all of the ways that social media seems to be uh, disconnecting people and uh, causing people to fight with one another on all kinds of issues. Occasionally, social media can actually bring people together. And, uh, oh, I guess probably about six weeks ago, on Twitter, 
Jonathan Martin put out that he was going to be working on his next book uh, for a few weeks up in Oxford, Mississippi, and he just put it out there, hey, if anybody wants to have me in to speak, just uh, hit me up, and uh, a friend of mine, Brandon, had uh, seen the tweet, and he's like, hey, what do you think about this, Crispin? And next thing I knew, I'm, I'm talking to Jonathan Martin, and uh we, we set it up, and he came in and spoke at North Shore Vineyard Church for our Easter service, and man, it was fantastic. You can actually go check that out on the North Shore Vineyard podcast, uh, but or on uh, Jonathan's podcast. He actually has a podcast called Son of a Preacher Man, and man, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know Jonathan, uh, certainly a very uh, kindred spirit, and in this interview, we're talking all kinds of things. Uh, I think the first... 10 or 15 minutes we're talking you too so uh we're, we're <laughs> never know where these conversations are going to start but you will be dropped in on a conversation about you too which uh, uh jonathan turns out is a a huge u2 fan and uh so it was kind of fitting at north shore vineyard we we kicked off our easter service with uh when love comes to town off of uh rattle and hum and uh i had no idea that jonathan was such a massive u2 fan so he was like pretty pumped up (laughs) anyway let's go ahead and head to this extra crispy conversation between myself and jonathan martin thanks for listening Start here. I don't know. Man, we shouldn't have eaten lunch and had a beer beforehand because I'm like, let's start hello. with a moment of silence right. uh, for about an hour. <laughs> that is a little heavy, but I'm happy. <laughs> so, you're, you're a speaker, author, itinerant guy homeless dude mm-hmm. looking for where to land homeless person goes around talking about jesus and going to youtube <laughs> shows that's basically that's basically my life dude you're a big youtube fan i didn't know I, that son i mean i knew i knew you'd said something about yeah. youtube before but i didn't realize like 23 shows 23 shows which isn't which is embarrassing i mean that's like that's kind of over the line that's idolatry i'm sure but <laughs> that's the only tattoo i have is from all you can't that. leave behind yeah <laughs> So, okay, your your favorite U2 albums in order. Ooh, that's a great question. How many do you want me to do? Like all like like the whole studio catalog or just like a top? Okay, just give me your like give me your top 5 and we may go to top 10. Octing Baby. Uh-huh. Joshua Tree. All that you can't leave behind. Um then I'd probably go with the new one, Songs of Experience. Yeah. And uh 5, I'd probably have to say Pop. I love pop. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's underrated. I'm a big fan. Yeah, those are, those are my... Octane Baby is actually my far and away number one, because as great as Joshua Tree is, I I feel like as a, as a coherent record start to finish, yeah. like back half, like Octane is still stunning to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to. I, I have to put Joshua Tree first. It's. I mean, it's. I would never argue against it. Joshua Tree is amazing. <laughs> you know, it really is, and timeless. How do you feel about Rattle and Hum? 
Yeah, I, I really, I love Rattlin' Hum. I mean, I hate that it's panned. I feel like it's not, yeah. I, I, there's just too many good songs on it. There's great tunes. And I there feel is. Like, you know, this whole accusation that by kind of aggrandizing themselves, because with, you know, going to all the great kind of spots for blues and Americana, like, I just think, I, I just feel like the way the album got slammed was unfair. Yeah. It was, because the, the, the point, the whole accusation was that U2 was taking themselves too seriously. Whether or not you thought they were taking themselves too seriously, the record's great. And and brings me back around to being at your church on Sunday and that crazy cover you did of When Love Came Down. I'm like, I just, I melted. It's Easter and <laughs> singing that. Like, I was, like, I, it, just, it just fried my circuits. That was <laughs> the happiest moment I can recall having. Yeah, that was kind of a last-minute decision. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking about the the resurrection. I'm like, it's when love comes to town. Yes, we're gonna do this song because uh, it fits. So it seems like an Easter song. Oh, it is. It is an <laughs> Easter song. It really is an Easter song. And y'all nailed it too. It's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been I've been loving that one. I I uh, I'm a few years older than you, so I actually went and saw Rattling Hum in the movie theater when oh, it came no out. Way. Like That's I was awesome. like. Ninth grade. Yeah. So I got into YouTube because there was this girl that I liked, and she was like a grade ahead of me. I was like in eighth grade, ninth okay. grade, and she was a grade ahead of me. And and I remember um, she uh, she liked you too. So I started listening to you too, just so I could have a way in. Sure. And I didn't. Under, it, it's it's weird to try to describe how strange the joshua tree album sounded when it came out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because yeah. like i liked it a little but it was one of those things that i didn't realize how genius it was yeah. until like it, it and that's one that that just still still after all these years totally. it's still like I'm, I'm still uh unpacking it it doesn't it, date at all yeah because oh. I, I remember With or Without You, I think, was the first single that came mm -hmm. out. And I'm like, it was so weird. Yeah. It's like it didn't sound like anything on the radio right. at that time. It was right. out of left field. And uh, so, yeah. So I, I, I think I would say Joshua Tree, Octune Baby, uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and 
I don't know after that. I like I do like Rattle and Hum. I think yeah. it's an underrated album. It is underrated. And I, I think even U2 underrates it. They, oh, they, they do. Kind, they, they kind do. of seem embarrassed about it. They but do. I'm like, yeah. dude, like, there's there's some fantastic stuff on there. For sure. And and I'm thinking, you know, as an Irish band, what else are you going to do? Then right. You just got to go to Elvis's studio right. and all these places. Absolutely. Freaking, freaking, like, pay homage. Yes, that's right. That's, <laughs> and they were. They were paying homage. They weren't. <laughs> They weren't putting themselves on par with yeah. any of those people. That's that's one thing I the there's a scene in that movie uh Ray about Ray Charles where yeah when he's a little kid, I don't know, 3 or 4 years old and he's in this little uh juke joint or it's attached to a store and this this older guy is teaching him something and teaches him the pentatonic scale mm. and which is the the basis of blues music. Mm. As well as, it's actually the most universal scale. You find it in Chinese music, uh, West African music, Celtic music, country music, uh, blues. Um, but Ray Charles discovers that scale. And then it was right before his eyes went blind. Mm. And uh, I I remember when I was about 14 years old, I'm in a music store and this guy trying to sell me a keyboard shows me the pentatonic scale. Hmm. And I've been playing music, writing stuff for a few years before then. And he shows me that scale and like all of a sudden things clicked. And it was like, when I watched that Ray movie, I'm like, that's exactly what happened to me. Some guy, I wasn't paying him for lessons, showed me this thing. And I realized like, this is the basic, Mm. you know, five notes that are the foundation of, of all the good music. And, um, so I, I when I think about you two, like like even the bridge between Celtic music yeah. and blues music and country music, uh, and and West African music, like a lot of people don't see that those things are related, but they mm. they are. And I think that you know, as a band coming from Ireland, to yeah. to kind of pay homage in a sense, but also right. kind of you know, like like we're we're bringing you know, this is lovely thing I love I love about music. So yeah. yeah. Do you, because um, I feel like you're such a, I mean, you're you're a real musician. I mean, you're so you're so skilled. Occasionally, not many. I mean, most most people I know in music actually adore you too. But I meet those folks on occasion who kind of bash on them for just not, just for not being extraordinary musicians. Insofar that what the, you know, there, there's a fundamental simplicity, especially like yeah. especially on the rhythm side in terms of like sure. bass and drums. Like, do you? I mean. How do you feel about you two, like in terms of musicianship? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, it's funny because I was having this interview with with, the, with Paul Meany from Mute Math, and and we were kind of discussing how you know, like when you're young, you're impressed by like drummers who can just play yeah. these big drum sets and stuff, but the older you get, you realize like playing something simply but that there's a nuance to it and yeah maybe the edge is not the the most technically proficient guitar player or not near it but when you look at the most influential guitar players in the last hundred years i'd put him in the top 10 yeah yeah i mean he's revolutionized it so it's like um yeah he's not at the technical skill level, but so much, but I mean, honestly, even some of the greatest blues players weren't Mm -hmm. the most, I mean, you don't listen to 
uh, Sunhouse or Robert Johnson or something for technicality, yeah. you're you're listening for they they create an emotional space, yeah. and I think that's something that that you two understood. And because they keep it so simple, people tend to think, oh, well, they're just they're just idiots. Well, no, they're not, because yeah. nobody else is creating anything that's emotionally this compelling. That's right. There, there's a level of genius yeah. in that simplicity, and you know, one of the other aspects probably one of my greatest influences musically is Daniel Lanois who pro- oh, man, he produced I love Lanois. Yeah, so he produced the the uh Octoon Baby mm-hmm. and Joshua Tree and uh Under Unforgettable Fire and all you can I mean pretty much every favorite U2 yeah. album he <laughs> that I have he produced it but also Peter Gabriel and Willie. I love his solo stuff. I love his solo. Oh, his solo stuff is just incredible and a lot of people don't don't realize that but I think that's one of the things too with you two is that that early on, you know, from Unforgettable Fire on, you have a young band with a real punk rock kind of simplistic, yeah. like cut the fat out of what we're doing and yeah. let's 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 do something emotionally engaging. And I think that's that's one of the keys is their music is it's got this visceral kind of yeah. like heart on its sleeve, like you know, we're we're just gonna say something raw and emotional, mm-hmm. but they, they get in touch with with Brian Eno, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, who yeah. are as seasoned of, of musicians as you right. can get, who have just a, a big picture. And yeah. working with those guys, Lanois, I, I remember watching the, um, uh, what is it, the Joshua Tree documentary, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Bono said something about Lanois. He says, when Daniel Lanois in the room, it makes you want to play better. Mm. Well, I thought I've talked my friend Kathleen Falsani, who's a good friend of Bono. We yeah. talked about this, and I remember even thinking when I saw that documentary, it's interesting how you know if you watch personality like that's so unusual for him. But Bono's kind of quiet when Lenoir. He's deferential when Lenoir's in a oh, room. Yeah. He reverences him. Totally, you know. I mean, because yeah. he is like his his <laughs> his sense of like creating a sonic landscape yeah. and this really wide screaming. No, nobody does atmosphere yeah. the way him and Eno. So I do yeah. think that can only be like underplayed is just how instrumental yeah you know and Lanois were to really defining yeah. the youtube they're sound. the other members of the band yeah but i think that's i think that's a beautiful picture too of sure. like when you have a, a skilled seasoned mentor right who can help a young emerging artistic thing find their voice mm-hmm. And and give them wisdom beyond what they can see because you know when yeah. you're young you you you're very fired up you you've got all this raw potential, but having somebody that can help give you some direction not control you but bring out the best in you and I yeah. think that's you know that's why Lanois is the producer he, that he is is that like he can he can help you find your greatest mm-hmm. gift bring that to the forefront and add a little of his thing to it yeah. and. Um, I, I don't think if, if if you two had never come across Brian Eno and Lanwell, I, I don't think we would have known of them. You no, know, like they, no, they would have just way. been another, you know, post punk rock band that was, was cool and you know, maybe they'd have had a made a little splash. But sure. uh so yeah, there's a lot of things. I, I think that I think more often than not the thing that I find, you know, the last ten years with you two is people just because of their activism, you know, it gets a little uh tiring with people you know bono fatigue uh, yeah. on that it's you know and i, I get that i i kind of feel that way sometimes but i gotta tell you i went to the i did i was at the same joshua tree concert mm-hmm. in new orleans um 
we, I didn't even know if I was going to go. We, we, we scored some tickets last minute on StubHub for like 16 bucks a ticket. Oh, wow. I mean, it was Good a nosebleed grief. section, but it didn't matter because yeah, they had sure. such a big freaking screen there. Right. It's like, uh, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was a great show. Yeah. I, I, I'd seen the last time I'd seen you two was the uh, probably in '04 up in mm. uh, New York, and it was uh, the All You Can't or no, the How to Dismantle a uh-huh. Atomic Bomb, and uh, and that was a great show. It's a great show. Not one of my favorite records. No, I'm with same here. I, yeah. I think it might be a little overrated time because it won the Grammy and stuff. But like, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. But Ibano himself said it's more of a collection of songs, and that's true. I don't think yeah. like it's an album. Like proper, there's some good songs, but yeah. um, did I tell you I met him for the first time last year? Did I tell you what? That? No. Well, I've the last couple of years I've been doing a lot more with the One Campaign and um, doing made a couple of trips like lobbying in D.C. as a faith leader, and so it kind of came about just through that through being more involved with One. Uh, they made it happen for me to get to meet him before the show. I went to see him in Cleveland last summer. It was get one of the yeah, so I got to like go backstage and meet with like meet him at kind of a little meet and greet a few minutes for the show, like totally. Just, wow. I did not. I, I tried so hard to be cool. I was not cool. I mean, it was mono, <laughs> and especially given my level of fandom, and I was wearing a t-shirt, so you get my <laughs> tattoo is visible. That's embarrassing. And it, you know what? He uh, he was like you always hear. I mean, just couldn't have been more gracious. It was like it was interesting too because kind of, since I kind of uh, came up in church and listened like Christian, it was funny because like. Michael W. Smith and Dan Hasseltine, the lead singer from Jars of Clay, were back there. Oh, yeah. we, were, we actually we were, we all were kind of took in the show together. Um, my friend Steve Furtick was with me, and it was just, but it was just funny. Like it, um, I don't know. He he was so gracious, and he said the most amazing thing. It's like I because I was kind of like I could feel myself not being able to play it cool. So I said something kind of self deprecating because <laughs> somebody pointed at my tattoo, and I'm like, yeah, it's my twenty. That time was like my twentieth show. It's like my twentieth show. <laughs> I know that's not even cool back here, like you know, super fan kind of thing. And he like it was it was so cool. To, and I won't do my attempt at his accent, but like he like real gently like like grabbed my arm, and he's like, no, no, never apologize for being a fan. It's good to be a fan. People whose art or music inspire me. Like, I'm still a fan. I never want to. I never want to outgrow being a fan. You want to go through all your life as a fan. <laughs> It's good to be a fan. Wow. And I was like, oh, no, I just want to hold him to my breast. And just kind of like, it was so great. And just said, like, it's like. And you could because he's kind of a short guy. He's five, six. Yeah. And even with this platform, I'm six, five. But it was so great. It's like kind of diffused it, like your way of of receiving the compliment, but also like, it was just great. It's quintessential. Oh, that's awesome. He's just so cool. And then then he's going the whole thing because we had Stephen of Preachers and he goes this whole great riff about, you know. I've always felt a lot of kinship with preachers because, you know, preachers come in the room and they're always looking for the top line. You know, that's what singers and preachers, that's what we're always trying to do, you know, is find find the top line, find the melody. It's very like, you know, it's so like, it's so awesome. It's so badass, you know, it's, it's Bono. You're like, and this is what makes you Bono. Wow. <laughs> so out of those 23 concerts, what's, what was your favorite one? Or do you, do you have a favorite? It's it, it it's hard because that has that keeps getting renegotiated. Um, I did see them in Dublin on the um, Songs of Innocence tour. I was speaking. They, they brought me in like, hey, if you come speak a couple of our churches here, we'll get you to I'm done. <laughs> I go there. So that was epic as I thought it was going to be. Wow. But I got to tell you, I think the best show experience I ever had actually was seeing them in that same tour, Songs of Innocence. 
but seeing him in Madison Square Garden, yeah, that was next level. There was some, and partly like I mean like on that tour, you know, right before playing Streets of No Name, they were they would do uh, Paul Simon's A Mother and Child and like. Oh, wow. And so right before, like, you know, Bono's kind of setting that up, and then they call Paul Simon up on stage, and he does it with them. And, like, and it, you know, just something about them and Madison Square Garden, that actually had an intensity and energy to me that I thought was even, somehow, was felt more, maybe just the place I was at, even more special than seeing them in Dublin. I think there was something about yeah. them and the energy of the garden was like, that was wow. something. So that's probably that's probably my number one. Wow. So they had Paul Simon come out. <sighs> Dang. I he, know, that's what I said. He's one of my favorites, too. What a genius. Yeah. I'm sad about him stopping touring. I mean, it makes sense. I know he's... He's, he's like, coming to New... You, we need to we need to play, make plans. Go see him. He's coming in the fall to New oh, Orleans on his last tour. I uh, would love that. That'd be special. I saw him for the first time at Jazz Fest uh, about two years ago, mm. and it was uh, oh, phenomenal. I mean, that, that dude, like, yeah, as a songwriter, I'm just like, yeah... I'm aiming for it, but uh <laughs> no. No, he's a beast. He is yeah. absolutely a beast. Yeah. So brilliant. So top top U two songs for you. My top is where the streets have my name, and I'm careful yeah, it's cliche. Like it's just, you know There's no better song. You can't duplicate that. Like nothing <laughs> nothing else in life. Like nothing makes me feel like when the you know, the opening guitar chimes in over the synth pad. Like it's just such a perfect it's like I can never get past that. So um, that would still be top. I still really do think uh, With or Without You is an amazing song. And even though it's also like a yeah. classic and a standard, I think it is for a good reason. So that's still up there for me. Um, Bad would be very high on my yeah. list. Again, that kind of shamanistic thing U2 does that's so like live, that's always you know such an experience. Um, See, so yeah, I think those would be like at the very top of the list for me. Yeah. Agreed. I think another one for me, well, two other ones. They're off of Joshua Tree. One was Running to Stand Still. Oh, so great. And then uh, In God's Country. Like, Man, those are such yeah, good songs. Kind of uh, under the radar hits there. but uh, It was so good on the Joshua Tree tour for, the, for them finally to play oh. the second half of the album. Because, of course, that was, I was emotional hearing God's Country live. I've always loved that. That's not one, you know, yeah. we've got to hear historically. and. But yeah, those are great songs. And really, talking about songs off that album, it's hard in a way not to include Bullet the Blue Sky, especially since oh, yeah. it's always so relevant every time. And, you know, Bono will change up the spoken word thing. And, yeah. like, I mean, they didn't do this on tour, but last time they were on, like, Jimmy Fallon, he did this. I mean, of what anything anybody's done, Eminem or whatever, that was actually the most compelling kind of anti-Trump screed I've ever heard yeah. was like Bullet. But, you know, in the early 2000s, it was about gun control. Yeah. And you know what I mean? It always, but that, but it always just hit so hard. Yeah. And I, so that, like, I, I do think that's timeless. But yeah, that whole record is, I mean, I think Exit's a great song. It's, well, and uh, I didn't realize until going to see him that week, there's some of those songs they had never performed right. live. That's like right. Like off the, the Mothers of the, Well, maybe the Mothers of the Disappeared. But. They'd rarely done Mothers of the Disappeared. They'd almost never played Red Hill Mining Town. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there were a couple they've almost yeah. never done. Ah, that was so cool to, to hear the whole album in its entirety. Yeah. I'm like, damn. That was awesome. <laughs> and I know they didn't want to do that. They're not going to let themselves be a greatest hits band. But like, yeah. then if you wanted to like, come back out and do like, play Octane Baby all the way through. I wouldn't be mad at that. I, mean, I know. Like, yeah, I agree. I wish Paul Simon records. would do, uh, I'm sure he has done that. He probably actually did this about a year or so ago when he did the, the Graceland yeah. 30 or whatever year reunion. Yeah. 
Uh, that uh, that's that's one of my favorite albums ever too, and I I would not be disappointed nope. to see that. I don't thing. blame anybody for cashing on that kind of stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> it's tricky because like I feel like in a way the songwriting only matures and grows, and I feel like in the last couple of albums, like I feel like there's songs where I'm like, oh, I mean, I, I absolutely put in the absolute best work of their career. I will admit, which is probably true for a lot of YouTube fans, like. You wish they would stumble onto something sonically like Joshua Tree or Octane Baby was, yeah. where you hear it and you feel like, "Oh, what planet did that come from?" You know, yeah. where where it does kind of feel like the kind of second half U two stuff. They've kind of settled into like a, an evolved, but very much comfortable in their own skin yeah. kind of version of themselves. But that being said, like the songs, are, I mean, the songs are great. The songs are so are so yeah. good. So I don't feel like. You know, and they to go this long and never put a record that's you know where they embarrass themselves. I mean, it's just, it's still they're still making great music, but I still would love to have that kind of response again, where something like where now I'm like really like hits me upside the head, like wow, like where did that come from? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it's I think it's hard, you know, when you when you have hit, uh, I mean, whether it's the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or or U two or you know when you you have a couple of those groundbreaking. Yeah. I mean, cause when you, when you think of you too, from like, uh, you know, unforgettable fire, Joshua tree, even rattling hum. Right. Uh, but, but certainly Octune baby. I mean, it's yeah. like, uh, and I still like Zuropa too. I think Zuropa's Zuropa's about to say, <laughs> it's got more kind of the experimental. Euro yeah. rocks. I mean, Zuropa is amazing. It's, like, I think it's, it's got some fantastic, so- but it's like, man, the creative output yeah, when right. you, when you look at like, how much terrain they covered and how many right. and how many songs were on the cutting room floor. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just their B side stuff. Yeah. Uh they could release 10, 12 albums. Oh, totally. And of course. it wouldn't suck. That's right. No, it would not. <laughs> so, it would not. It's kind of like uh Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix. You know, yeah. Jimi Hendrix albums coming out every year just from stuff that's right. left over. And there will that's be Prince right. albums and stuff sure. just because the 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 output of them. So yeah. But, <laughs> they're such perfectionists though and yeah. they so that like that's the thing with you too like they just until the, the band is happy yeah and they're notoriously hard on themselves like they just don't but yeah i mean you, you you could have double the output clearly it's so i mean i heard even for this last record i think they had 60 songs that were recorded or so Dang. like that come off the, these last couple of years but again they're so always yeah tweaking and all that wow well, enough about you too. <laughs> I could do that all day. We could do that all day. Uh, part two of this podcast, we're going to talk about Jonathan Martin. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, oh, hang on. Let me uh, turn my ringer oh, off. You're fine. It's too late. I keep getting these calls that say scam likely. Oh, what does that mean? I don't know who, who Mr. Likely is, but I've uh, never seen that on the phone. You haven't I, I just figured this was something that I iPhone was doing now. Wow. Just says scam likely. I've I've gotten five of these calls today, so I just no don't way. answer them. I wanna know yeah, I wanna know what that's about. Yeah. That's, I'm fascinated by this. Okay. Maybe that's scam somebody's likely. actual name. Right, that'd be amazing. <laughs> oh no. Hey Scam. It's Mr. Scam likely to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you are you so you uh have been a pastor uh, currently, you're uh, not uh, a pastor in a in a church, but you you, you come from uh, you, you got a podcast called Son of a Peter Man, which we're actually going to be taping live tonight over at North Shore Vineyard. But um, you want to talk a little bit about your journey? You you come from uh, Church of God, Pentecostal, church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah I always uh, self refer as a hillbilly Pentecostal. Just you know, very colorful people and stories. You know, kind of like something out of a Flannery O'Connor book. But I mean. 
I I feel like for the most part colorful in a wonderful way. Like yeah. it was kind of like, but yeah, definitely a tent revivalist kind of feel. And because I always say, you know, again that we were like we were the Southern Pentecostals. We were like it's very, it's kind of an Appalachian phenomenon, you know. Yeah. So I feel like all that's deep in my my dad's a preacher, my grandfather was a preacher, all in that tradition. Wow. So all that stuff is kind of in my blood. Wow. And so you're you're one of the few only child like. <laughs> people in ministry that I know yes. other than myself. So I'm glad to have a, I'm sure everybody somebody. knows this feels like it explains a lot of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so you, you did a, you, you started a church in uh, Charlotte called mm-hmm. uh, Renovatus. That's right. What was that? That was a, uh, you know, that was a really interesting and wonderful season of my life. And we, it was kind of a, we did consider ourselves a Pentecostal church, but it was kind of, you know, there was a sacramental feel to it. We did communion every week and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, and I preached from the lectionary, and uh, it just kind of, uh, it was cool. We kind of, we started in sort of the arts district of Charlotte. We moved a number of times, but it was just, uh, you know, it was a great adventure, man. I started when I was 27, which I, th- wow. I think is really young to plant a church, so yeah. certainly learned a lot, but it was... Uh, it was a wonderful journey in so many ways. I feel like a lot of kind of just coming into my own as a leader and a pastor and a preacher and still feel so marked by that journey and those people, like really wonderful people, you know? So yeah, that was, I mean, it was certainly a big, a big chunk of my adult life and and a big part of my heart even now. Yeah. Wow. So your last book that you wrote was called surviving a shipwreck and and it's, it's a, or how to survive a shipwreck, mm-hmm. and it was it was uh, briefly tied into that experience a little bit. Well, yeah, I wrote how to survive a shipwreck kind of in the aftermath of leaving Renovatus, which yeah. really had to do with uh, my life falling apart, my marriage falling apart, uh, which you know I take full responsibility for. It was just it was really it was a dark place, and I was kind of um, growing up the way that I did, and uh, as in like this holiness tradition my whole life had kind of been on the straight and narrow and always sort of a, kind of an upward trajectory to it. And I think like, you know, that season just was, was such, was one of such unraveling for me. I really didn't know what it was going to do to me at the time, but it's funny. Like now I feel like I'm really not trying to quote the Hamilton song. Cause this predates that. But I remember very specifically while I was in the midst of all that, that cause I, there was so much, I just could not see. I didn't know like, who am I? Uh, especially when we stepped away from the church, it was like, and then walking through divorce, it was, um, I, I don't know who I am apart from any of these things that kind of propped me up. Do you know, who is Jonathan Martin apart from all these, these things and these, the, the, it, it had been kind of duct taped together, but, uh, you know, I really didn't know if I would survive that. I didn't know if I felt like I could come through on the other side of all that, but all of that's what I say. I really felt that if there was anything I feel like that the Holy Spirit gave me during that season, it was this idea that I needed to write my way out, which does predate the song. I feel like you got to write your way through this. And so, and part of what I feel like was important about Shipwreck now is that, you know, it, it seemed like there was an urgency to this idea that I not wait until I was on the other side and look back and describe. Because I think when you get on the other side of experience, helpful perspective in some ways, but you also forget a lot what that was like. And I feel like the book really captures a lot of the rawness of someone very much in process. But, you know, it's like there's nothing in there I hope. I wanted it to be like where there's no blood on the page except my own. I mean, it's very much just my own soul's struggle to connect with God 
from these very deep, dark places. And, and frankly, being surprised to find God in these places because I would have thought um, my mentality, as much as I'd preached otherwise to this, it, I, I think it was kind of hardwired to me, this notion that like when you're at your best and you're, uh, and you do it right. And, uh, you know, that that's, and then you're holy, that's when God works. And, it's, and so it was actually really surprising to me to find that the presence of God and, you know, just everything I believe about Jesus became so much more real and true and solid during that experience. And on the other side of the experience than it did before, which, that, which I mean, to this day, I would say it was kind of shocking. Yeah. You know, cause I kind of thought like, if you unplug me from all this, like, I mean, you know, who, Surely, like the whole thing shuts down, will I even still be a Christian? And and instead, to kind of have like all my most profound experiences of God on the other side of that. But I think it, you know it says a lot about who God is, and I think what God's really like. That you know, of course, like when you're flat on your back and you're defenseless and vulnerable, and you know have no pretenses. Of course, you're in. I, I can see now in an ideal place for an encounter with God. But I didn't know that then. I just you know I was just hanging on for dear life. Yeah. Well, I know I know you said something Sunday at North Shore Vineyard that uh, your your journey, even writing, you know, a, a good chunk of the, that book, you you found yourself down in New Orleans, yep. at, at, at a place that uh, you, you know, the type of atmosphere you would not have mm. expected to encounter God, and here you are in the midst of this place, and 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 this was the very place that you found God. And, I don't have to go into that whole story, but what I what I did tell Sunday about coming to New Orleans for a church convention when I was fourteen and just being intrigued, fascinated, hitting puberty, I was very fascinated, but also like, <laughs> but also horrified and think like, oh, this just seems like the height of debauchery and all these things. Like uh, Bourbon's really whoa, and so funny to see all the holiness folk walking down those streets. Even <laughs> now, I laugh to think about it. But I didn't come back to New Orleans again until that season in my life and it was funny because like I, I I instead of thinking it as a not spiritual place it, it was felt like the most spiritual place I'd ever been but I but I was experiencing life on the underside and I think there's a way that you know uh, I think New Orleans is a place for people who are broken open and and you know it is a bit of an isle of misfits in the best possible way and like I just I was coming in from a very different posture and it, and in that way I just felt like it was just weird that this place that had seemed so foreign and exotic, and I don't know what I think about that, to feel so much like home and more home than Charlotte, where I'm from. And like, like, like I just felt like my like my soul just found refuge there. So forever, yeah. New Orleans will be important to me, and still inspires me really deeply creatively, precisely because I feel like there's so much of that in the air. Yeah. The way I put it, like you know, voodoo and Catholicism are two sides of the same coin. It's just it's 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 a very spiritual place. There's a spiritual energy to it to kind of in all yeah. in all directions but there's an, there's an honesty that's there there's an authenticity that's there and i think i'm a you know i'm a good southern boy we're like we're just polite to a fault and yeah. you know what i mean i think i needed that. i think i need to be in a place where I, I could be broken open where i could feel messy and that be all right and let that even kind of get into the to the writing and get into yeah. like you know just uh, i would go uh not to be super pious i mean i, I was just Prayer for me then was such a lifeline because I was just so desperate, like I just just need just in need of God and walking through the quarter every morning to go to the cathedral, just like uh, you know, right in the heart there, just to pray. Uh, it was just even that uh, the, the the proximity, the, the cathedral kind of being the middle of it. I was I was seeing yeah. God that way, like God God is in the middle of all of this yeah. and and all these things that are very 
unkempt and wild and beautiful and scary. Like God, God is in the midst of all that. You know, like yeah. even praying in that place just did something to me inside. Wow, that's a how how revolutionary that idea really is. You know, um, because I think even for for people whether they they're Christians or not it seems like folks tend to treat God as if, I mean, even, even folks outside the church would just mm-hmm. say, well, you know, it, it, it seems like the, the place where God would most obviously be, would be like, you know, a holy mm-hmm. <laughs> sacred place. And, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a, a very interesting idea when you, when you begin thinking like, no, um, and I, and probably, you know, the most compelling thing about the gospel is that, yeah. you know, God, God does enter into the mess. That's right. That's right. You know, it's like the, uh, but I think you're right. Even people who are not explicitly religious, if any, like, I think it's a conceptual framework that most people in Western culture share that like, there's some spirituality as a way of transcending your humanity, get above it somehow, escape yeah. it somehow. And what I really did find through all that is like the, the deeper into your humanity you go, like that that's the real connection with God. The deeper in, like you don't go around, you go like right right through it. And those things so um yeah, I just but yeah, that was it was funny cuz again cuz theoretically I'm sure I would have professed something like sure. that, but I just did not have the resources to right. <laughs> to grasp it for myself cuz I think like any kind of referring to Jesus story of the prodigal son, like any of us kind of elder sons, I think you tend to think that even if you have a relationship with God or that that's okay, that it's basically because well, yeah, because I've at least tried my best to follow the rules and do the right things. Yeah. You know, when you're kind of when you're not in that space anymore, and it's like, oh, and God turns out to be much more real and present than before. It's just, yeah, that's that. It 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 is revolutionary, and I still think it is for. I I, I still find I I just don't I don't think many people that I know, uh, frankly, like really believe that that God is found by going deeper into their humanity. I think most of us think that it's a way of rising above. It's just not, it's not how it works. Yeah. Not how God works. Well, and I, I think there's something in that too, that I know for me, you know, having been in a very insular kind of, uh, church experience early on that I was told that, uh, you know, living across the lake from new Orleans that, that, well, I was told all kinds of things about the kind of people that hang yeah, out down yeah. there. And, and it is, it is quite an eye opening thing when you, when you, not only do you have those experiences personally, but then also when you come in contact with some of the people that you've been told were monsters right. and, right. and these were people outside of the grace of God. And then you realize like, wow, they, they actually seem more loving and compassionate and, and honest. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> than some of the people in my tribe. And, and yes. I, th- I think that's, that's so much of the disservice that I think happens like, you know, unintentionally to kids that, that grow up oftentimes in, in church is that they're fed all these things and they right. believe them. Right. But then you actually go out into the real world and then, you know, you, you bump into something that really challenges like mm-hmm. not just your beliefs, but, but it's, it's, it's in the flesh. It's yeah. like, you know, you see people that, yeah. wow, these people, but, and then, so then you start going, well, if this part's not true. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, my kind of, um, I mean, it, 
it's not a technically a parable, but for me, it's become almost a parable allegory for this season. In the last year, I keep returning to the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Because the thing I never really thought about that story is that the two disciples there are leaving Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is the holy place. That's where the temple is for Jews. All their lives are oriented around the temple. And the fact that this sacred place is now where they've seen Jesus of Nazareth killed. So the sacred place feels desecrated. And you know, it, it just never hit me that like them for them walking away from Jerusalem is synonymous with walking away from God. Surely they think now with yeah. that dream shattered, they feel like all oh, that that was a sham and that's over. And for those of us, you know, for those who know the story, uh, the punchline essentially is that while they're on this walk away from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, a stranger comes up and walks uh, alongside them, which the big reveal later in the end is that it's Jesus who's walking with them. And that, but I, that whole thing has become like my just image for this season, I think for a lot of people, is that I feel like a lot of people right now are leaving sacred spaces, leaving yeah. Jerusalem, leaving the temple, precisely because they are hungry for an encounter with God. In many cases, they haven't got an encounter with God in the temple. Yeah. <laughs> and I think sometimes you actually do have to leave it to find that. So I don't want to be that person that's shaming folks or saying, and it's someone who is who loves the local church, believes in the local church, serves local churches, but I don't want to be that person that tells you when, okay, now y'all play, say it, play it safe. Everybody stay back in Jerusalem because I'm way too convinced at this point that God meets people on that road. So I'm not afraid of it anymore. I'm not afraid for people to go yeah. on whatever journey that they need to go on. What I'd rather do, though, if anything, is help give people the resources to at least ask the question, where might God be on this road? <laughs> Could it be that yeah. God walks with you even on the road away from God? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what would it look like, like what, if you just looked around right now? How is God present even in the midst of these things. So I so I'm not I'm not somebody who's freaking out about folks leaving the church or the millennials or whatever else. In fact, actually, as much as I love the church and hate that this is the case, and some sometimes I feel like people leave the church precisely because they have a sense of integrity as integration and it might even be a sign of health and wholeness that yeah. they have to leave a system or an institution that for them feels deeply broken or just not resonant with their own soul. And I I, I tend to think that God will honor that. two-year training in spiritual direction, you know, um, not with the intention of becoming spiritual directors, but I just found the whole process from visiting spiritual directors, just like it was, uh, a, a really impactful for me. But, yeah. but one of the things I found in the process too, was that, um, just the power of questions, mm-hmm. you know, that, that what we need probably more times than not is not the answer, but better questions, you know, that, mm-hmm. cause I, I, I do feel like, 
I shared this at lunch today. I, I do feel like so much of where I see people struggling with faith, particularly people who've grown up in evangelicalism, is that whether it's evangelicalism, fundamentalism, or even the new atheism, all the arguments are framed the same way when it comes to the Bible. Let's right. let's like let's let's treat this like this this book is meant to answer <laughs> questions that we have right now and and meant to be read literally uh, across the board. Everything is meant to be uh, you know have equal authority. Um, but, but that's the same paradigm from, from the new atheist to, to the fundamentalist. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, and so for me, I find that, that when I'm in that paradigm, I only ask, ask the questions that actually fit within that paradigm, you know, like they only, those, those, the questions that only make sense around those ways of framing it. And, and I've just found like, you know, okay, well, let's, let's remove <laughs> this way of framing things. And mm-hmm. so it, you know, can ask some, uh, better questions because I, I feel like, you know, whether it's fundamentalism or, or even the new atheism, so many times the, the questions that are asked really aren't about transformation or growing or, or finding meaning. It's just about either affirming or, or deconstructing this thing and that's pretty low hanging fruit. I mean, it's 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 easy to to look at the church in a in the United States or even in in history and just go, well, this is this is just bullshit. And uh, uh, so th- th- there's plenty of reasons. But I'm I'm interested. What do you? Because because I, I I have a feeling both in your writing, you know, what you said about this is a a story you're going to have to write your way out of. Um, probably said it a different way but um what do you think are helpful questions that people can ask if they're if they're struggling with their faith and what what place do you think writing and putting words to things using writing is maybe even a a a way of of reflection and contemplation and actually naming the things beneath the surface how how would you encourage people in that those are that's such a great question. I mean, I abs- my whole understanding now of God and the gospel and all that is that um, rather than answering my questions, that it has given me a, a better set of questions that I'm trying to live out of. Those questions for me would include things like, um, who am I? I think it's, it's a very foundational yeah. question. Who am I? Uh, in relation to God, who are you? Um who is my neighbor? As we're told to love yeah. our neighbors, who is my neighbor? Um, I mean, I think really like the the identity questions are the ones that are that are most central to me, and where I have to go back to over and over again. Even my own like, you know, um, what am I doing here? And and even and even things like questions. Sometimes I think people are really afraid to go into. What do you want? Yeah. Like, what, what do you want? That's what do you desire? Yeah. What are you afraid of? Because there's so much truth to be found just in attempting to excavate those questions, which I think are very spiritual in nature. And to your point about like some of the new atheism and fundamentalism, my sense is, and I, you know, I don't mean to be all fiery about something, but I, I, this is something I do feel very strongly about. I think people just so are, are crave uh, an experience of spirituality, something that's that's other reverence, wonder, 
something that's mystical. I just feel like we're, there's, we're so built in for that. And I think rationalism in any set of clothes doesn't serve anybody well because at the end of the day, the, the kind of mechanical answers, whether given to you in a faith context or outside yeah. of it, ultimately still don't take you beyond yourself. And I think that's what we're hungry for fundamentally is to go beyond the self. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where, to me, it does feel like a lot of fundamentalism and a lot of like, like really angry, aggressive kind of atheism, whatever, like to me, it all sounds like the same, the same, because it is operating on the same continuum. Whereas I feel like what people are wanting is something like, is something, uh, it, it, it is what I would call fundamentally an experience of, of the spirit, which I think is, is available to every person. That's the thing. You know, it's like I was, even when I was speaking here on Sunday, it was hitting me real time in the moment, just how like all the stories of, Jesus post resurrection. It's all all the question, all the stories really are about people's eyes being open, like their perception is yeah. altered to be able to see something in a, in a moment they weren't able to see before. It's a way of seeing. I mean, I yeah. think like, uh, prayer is a way of being. Is not just something that, like I I do once in a while. Where like prayer is a way of being in the world with God, and uh, and it's a way of it's a way of seeing your yourself, your life, you know, those the people around you. Like that's that's what I want for. It. But I think like to. I think to go on that path, you have to you have to grapple with those kind of fundamental questions. You have to grapple with the why questions, the who am I questions, and like, and the identity stuff. Because I think like, to me, the very foundation of the spiritual life is you you have to finding that sense of who you are. Like at the center, at the ground floor, what is your identity? Like for me, um, not that I always live from this place, but that ground floor is you know. Jesus, when John the Baptist baptized him and all that, the voice of the Father. And this, I find it so interesting. This is before his earthly ministry. So he hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't passed the temptations of the wilderness, much yeah. less endured the cross. But the voice comes from heaven that says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, there's this idea that, like, fundamental identity is beloved son, beloved daughter of God that runs deeper than anything else, that runs deeper than any success, that runs deeper than any failure or you know or any any mistake like like that I didn't that's at the core of who I am. Yeah. And I think what's unique I think there are multiple things that are unique about Jesus, but I think the thing that maybe is most unique in some ways is that like Jesus never forgets that. There's a great Henri Nouwen quote, uh, one of the great tragedies of human life is that we're always forgetting who we are. Jesus never forgets and wow. he lives all of his life out of that sense of identity. Whereas what I do to this minute is I'm constantly in and out of it. Like I'll remember, I'll yeah. see it, I'll grasp. I'll, like for a moment, I can live from there, and then I get distracted. I forget, and you know, and and pulled into some other narrative and trying to find myself in some in some identity that's not native, you know, like for my own soul. But that's always what I'm trying to go back to, and gently where I try to direct people in life, ministry, whatever. It's like that. What does it mean to really believe that you're beloved son or daughter of God? What is it? What does it mean to believe that you're fully, completely? accepted and loved precisely as you are in this moment. If you if you li- if you were able to live out of the full confidence that you are completely accepted, what decision would you make right now? What would the choice be? What what yeah. what what do you do if that's what you believe? Yeah. Because I think like it's only when we operate out of the security of knowing that we're loved that then like we're not operating out of need. We don't we're not we're not looking for a relationship to fix us. We don't need uh, a, a certain kind of success and a career to adjust us, and, and like uh, to me, that's uh, until we—that's what spirituality, I think, is all about—is ultimately finding a sense of home inside ourselves. And and you can have that from no matter who you are, where you live, whether or not things are going well, or not, you know what I mean. Like it's yeah. something that can that can 
that can be settled in a way. And I, that's what I'm always trying to at least provoke people towards. Well, it's it's an interesting thing that so you're you're a guy who grew up Pentecostal and you you've ended up uh, at least you know in the last few years um, in more of a you know Episcopalian kind of place. How how does that work? I mean, most people don't start out Pentecostal and end up uh, Episcopal. I mean, maybe some people do. I'm sure. Um, what has that meant for you? How has that helped you? Uh, what what does that what does it mean to be a person who believes in experiencing the spirit in 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 that kind of uh, context? It's helped me in more ways than I can count. I think the coming down to the front every week to kneel to receive communion and and especially do taking the Lord's Supper on a regular basis has become everything to me. Oddly enough, now this took me some time because before it was for a long time it was jarring, but. Now, those experiences seem much more connected to me because I think like, and I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody, but there's a certain kind of fundamentalism that is, 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 that is predominant. It is rationalistic. It is very head and it's about memorizing Bible verses or whatever. Pat answers to questions. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like um, at the heart of kind of Catholic, Anglican and Eastern Orthodox spirituality that focus on the Eucharist, like it's in 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 the great traditions, it might be articulated a different way, but there's some version of real presence. There is something more than a symbol that's happening yeah. here, and I think the very fact that like every week you're returning to that space for a mystical encounter with Christ, oddly is connected with me to my Pentecostal charismatic side that were of like making space for the Spirit, because you know there's nothing utilitarian about receiving communion. It takes a long time to do. Does it benefit anybody? It's not entertaining. Yeah. Like how? To, like you don't. It's not exactly a church growth strategy. Like whatever. Right. <laughs> like it's like you know Flannery Connor's great quote. If it's uh, if it's only a symbol to hell with it. It's almost like like if, if there's not some <laughs> kind of transaction that happens here, then like what are we doing? So I feel like it it creates space for something other. I feel like it creates space for the supernatural. Yeah. And that's how now to me that seems oddly fluid. I don't think I told you this, uh, but I was talking about this to a friend the other day. And was you? I'm sorry, but like. Our friends have heard this. Uh, I had a strange experience last summer because I was preaching at a little Church of God church in Monroe, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte. But that's rural. That's very much yeah. in the country. That still does like redback hymnal kind of songs. And it's like it's very, it has the feel of the kind of Church of God I grew up in, in a good way. Yeah. And uh, But that morning, I took my mom with me to go to the 845 service first at St. Peter's Episcopal, where I went in Charlotte for a season before moving. And... The thing that so struck me about that day, it's like, I'm in a, because that, St. Peter's is high church Episcopal. Like there, there's the choir and yeah. it's very reverent. It's very like, ooh, like there's no, it's racially diverse and all that, but people don't really say, man, like I've been in other Anglican kind of spaces where there's a little more energy yeah. in that regard. But we're in that and we, I went from there just to attend with my mom and then taking her on to our native kind of environment, being in the church of God, singing, have a little talk with Jesus. And what struck me is for the first time in my life, I thought, this is seamless. Like, yeah. I don't, this is, this isn't even weird to me. I'm not even like, it's not, and I'm not even doing the thing of like, ooh, well, how odd that is. Like, it's like of course, <laughs> of course, that's the same presence. Of course, that's the same love. Of course, this is the same. Of course, this is the same mystery at the bottom of both of these things. Wow. So, but, but, you know, it's taken a while to get there because I think for a long time, even where I've in intuitively felt like I was being pulled in that way, I felt dissonance between those yeah. things. And now I just really don't. I feel like, you know, that's also kind of two sides of the same coin. And, uh, 
And that again, in a weird way, that what those kind of great traditions and Pentecostalism have in common is room for the spirit and room for yeah. the idea of an encounter with God in worship. So now those things, they're strangely connected to me. Do you think if you had grown up Episcopal that, that you would have had the same kind of, um, in, it, that it would have the same impact on you now as it did? It, flatly, no, I do not. And I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's an important one. Um, because I don't want to become that person who says now, see, this is the way it's done. Yeah. And if you come and do it this way, you encounter God. Because here's what I really think. I think we most often encounter God in that which is other to us. Like yeah. I think where there's space where we're surprised, where we're kind of taken yeah. off guard, where our senses are engaged in a way that they have are not traditionally engaged, that there's more space for God in that. So yeah. I think if I was a cradle Episcopalian, I could absolutely imagine going to Pentecostal and Charismatic Church saying, there's all this freedom and the Holy Spirit's moving and there's a sense of God's power. And what on earth have I been doing? Where was this all my life? This is where I yeah. should be. Whereas I come from the opposite direction where I find liturgy and the beauty of that and the beauty of even those kind of liturgical spaces and, uh, the, and the rhythm of it and say, oh, where has this been all my life? Like it's, but what I really do believe is like, you know, God is in all of that. And I think yeah. what's funny about how we are is that like, you know, we're always kind of moving around and saying like, oh, okay, you know, like, well, so... God wasn't really back there. God's over here. And then like once you get real settled in over here, that brook has to dry up a little bit. Oh, oh, God's actually back here. Well, God is in all these places. But I think that's the point is that we need the openness, you know, to be able to yeah. see and recognize the spirit at work and all kinds of expressions. and all that. But I, I've thought about that a lot. I actually yeah. do not think that if I'd have grown up that way, we'd have that kind of experience. Because like whatever, whatever becomes like too native to you, whatever is like too familiar stops working on you in a way. And I think even if you um, stay with it or you reconnect with it, there typically has to be some phase where there's a sort of deconstruction and asking a lot of questions yeah. to where you finally can come back around and feel like you can you can own it you know, as your own and that it's something that's fully chosen yeah. as opposed to something that was kind of chosen for you. Yeah, because I, I certainly see a thing, you know, down here in Southeast Louisiana, like Catholicism is much the culture as it is a religion. I mean, sure. it's like, um, I'd say probably three quarters of the people that, that even go to North Shore Vineyard, uh, have grown up hmm. Catholic. And so, um, and it's, so it's, and we noticed, I noticed this even when I was the, the worship director at the, uh, New Orleans Vineyard, uh, we would do this thing called the alpha course where we would set up tables and just, you know, we'd have a jazz band and, you know, have a little conversation and a lot of these Catholic folks, you know, who never really read their Bibles much because they just, it wasn't a, certainly compared to evangelicalism, it was, mm -hmm. and, and and certainly in the format of Alpha, where you can ask questions and yeah. actually have a conversation, like, they're eating this up. They're like, yeah. wow, you know, I never got, but then I find people like myself or yourself and, and mm -hmm. other people who've grown up evangelical who it's like, uh, are, are, are migrating into the Eastern Orthodox right. or Catholic or Episcopal and, and finding that very fresh. And I, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I found, uh, uh, you know, praying the Jesuit prayer of examine, you mm -hmm. know, on a regular basis and reflecting and, uh, you know, doing these creeds and these corporate prayers. Like I, I find that stuff just, yeah. just really, uh, engaging to me right now at this point in my journey because I, I feel like, you know, where, where I grew up 
when I was a kid going to church or even in the early years, um, as, as a Christian, as an adult, like there was always this mentality of like, you don't want to take communion too much. Yeah, that's right. Or it's going to become dead religious that's tradition. Right. Totally. And it's like, uh, I don't really remember taking communion hardly at all the first decade I was a Christian. Mm-mm. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was scared to death of it, man. Yeah, exactly. Because we, it was odd. We believed it was only a symbol on the one hand, and yet also if you eat and drink the body unworthily, in Paul's phrase, that yeah. you might drop dead. So it's like the, it's like Russian roulette. Best case scenario is nothing happens. Worst case scenario is you die. So I, I consciously yeah. tried to avoid environments where communion was served because I was that I was literally afraid. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I remember I did a, a message uh, at the church a few years ago talking about that passage about discerning the body rightly. I was like, mm. well, who's the body? I was like, if you look at the whole... First Corinthians, he's talking about the body and how they're dividing over yes. rich and poor and yes. favorite preachers and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's coming to the table and realizing that you're not a part of this body or, mm-hmm. or treating other people wrong. And mm-hmm. so it's not about getting introspective about, you know, right. trying to dredge up everything. So you, no. it's actually living in right relationship with other people. That's right. Because who morally is ever going to be worthy of the blood of Jesus? Right. That's ridiculous. Like moralistically, <laughs> but you're so right. Like I really think what's happening in that text in particular is like the the table that's supposed to be the table of unity is mirroring the broader divisions of the world. So the wealthy yes. are coming in and eating and drinking as much as they want. The poor are in the not influential in the community are giving scraps, and that's where Paul says. Yeah. You have it rightly discerned the body of Christ, you, you, your brother and your sister. So it's a, but it's so yeah. weird to me now that like we turn that into. If you have an, unconf- an unconfessed sin, if you yeah. have a lustful thought today, did you say a swear word? Well, then got to make sure. Because I really do believe that th- this stuff blows my mind to this minute, and I'm surprised that more, pe- more people don't talk about it. So, like the Gospels, which come a little bit later, and you know t- they're in early Christian communities that are already really established around the meal. And the central scandal of the life and the life and ministry of Jesus is his table practice. He eats and drinks with tax collectors and yeah. sinners. He's famous for it. He sits eyeball to eyeball with them. He dignifies them. He touches lepers and other people who are ceremonially unclean. You know, they, they, he does have to worry about being defiled. He imparts life and wholeness into them. Now it just seems weird to me that we would say, here's this meal where we celebrate the body and blood of Christ, and to say that that doesn't work the same way, that the table practice yeah. of Jesus isn't supposed to inform our table practice. Like... I go to the table, and, and, and I'm so conscious of this now, like out of a place of desperation, like in yeah. some moments where I feel like I'm most unraveling, or even felt the most sinful. It's like there's a hunger and thirst to get back there yeah. because that's a way of coming home, that's, of telling me who I am. Like I, the idea that you have to clean up for that. or be, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I do think there's something important about, because I think part of what Paul you know, is hitting there is that there's a posture problem that's wrong. I think there's something about coming humble and hungry, but sure. like those are the only requirements: yeah. is that you co- is that you come hungry. You don't come presumptuously. Like to be, uh, I think the hungry you come, or even maybe the the more unworthy that you feel, all the better in some ways because then yeah. your hands are more open and you know that it's a gift and you receive it as a gift. Well, and I, I think even when you look, you know, you look at Jesus eating dinner with the wrong crowd, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't realize how scandalous that would right. have been. Uh, but I mean, even nowadays, I mean, you just don't sit down and break bread with enemies. Sure, sure. If there's somebody that that is your enemy, or some class of people that you don't associate, like that, it's still a big deal for us. We just don't realize it because our world is so compartmentalized. But it's a, uh, you know, even when you come to the the gospel, the good news, mm. it's like 
Jesus, it wasn't words. It wasn't yeah. merely words. It wasn't John 3.16, just just like a, just believe in this thing. Like Jesus actually lived it out. Right. Like the good news was like, the God who created all this is going to sit down and break yes. bed with the people who don't get to go to the temple. Yes. And he's going to, he's just going to do it and he's going to take flack for it. And he's going to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. and I, I'm reminded of that when I come to the table, it's yeah. like, you know, that, that, um, anybody's welcome there that's because right. that's, that was Jesus's policy. I mean, the only way you don't get welcome is there is to turn your nose up at it and walk that's away. That's exactly right. If you, if you can't, <laughs> you are allowed to refuse the invitation. You yeah. can say no, but everybody's invited. And I think like there, yeah. I think there's even this idea of like, I just don't see, and I know that pushes some people's buttons, but it's not unheard of. I mean, even um, of all people, the ministry of John Wesley. John Wesley was known to use the Eucharist in like a an evangelistic way. I mean, I just think if a person is drawn to faith in Christ and they come to the table like in a hungry, humble way, like who's to, not, to deny them whether yeah. or not they've had faith before, what their experience is before. Yeah. I, and I now have people in my life who really push back on that, because and historically, because like it is true that largely in church history, you know, there was this. You have to go through sometimes some baptism and some form of catechesis and all that before like, but I personally just really contend for an open table precisely yeah. because I just think like it's the, 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 the ta- I feel like Jesus table is always completely open. I think the table itself coming yeah. and coming humble and hungry is a transformative experience yeah. of God's grace. I, there is nobody I would not want. And see, it's funny too, because you think about like even, uh, I don't know if you had like, uh, this is maybe it's kind of a radical example, but if you think of like, if I had a room where there's like folks from the KKK in it, and then there's, you know, all these other minorities who are there, you know, it's interesting. Like if you had an invitation, to the table would be a call to repentance, like to come, yeah. to come would be transformational, would be to change. Because yeah. I think, I think the emphasis on the table so much is like, our connection with God vertically is so connected to our relationships horizontally. Yeah. So like to come with these other people alongside you to not be too good for that, to not, or, 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 or even to deem or to deem yourself too unworthy, but to come along the people that you come yeah. alongside of, that's a lot of where I think the power is. Oh, that's good. That's good, man. Well, on the, on the side of, of, of writing and, and how, how transformative that has been in your journey. Um, I, I, I think that the, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a songwriter and and I I, don't, I write too. Um, uh, I was writing a lot long, lot longer before I actually started speaking. Um, so I'm, fam- I'm familiar with that word, but world <laughs> word. Um, how do you? You know, I I started doing a. I'll backtrack a second. I started doing a a little series on, on the book of Genesis and a few weeks ago. And, and it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, when you look at like when God creates, God speaks, you know, there's this, like he speaks a word and calls order forth out of chaos. And then, you know, obviously in the new Testament, John, you, you learn that the, the logos, the word of God is that Jesus is that. Um, and there's that sense of, that I think even in our own lives, and, and I think this is, you know, even like why breaking away from fundamentalism is, is very helpful and like looking at like, 
symbolically like Genesis one, you know I mean? Like we all have formless chaos beneath the surface of our lives. We all got this stuff inside of us that we can't pay attention to. We're unconscious and it rears its head sometimes Mm -hmm. and we see the effects of it and we see how it sabotages our relationships and, and, you know, um, but we're scared to death about that stuff. We're scared to death about the stuff that's in, but if we can put words to those things, all of a sudden those things become real to us yes. in a way they didn't exist before. Yeah. I mean, they didn't exist in, in a specific way. They yeah. just were this, this place. How has writing for you kind of helped you in your journey, you know, putting words to these things, and how has that helped you in your growth and your own transformation? For me, putting language... Uh, to things in the depths of my soul, my humanity, whatever, like it's everything. And I think it's taken me a long time to see that, but it, it is the main way that I worship. It is it, like, if I don't, if I'm not doing it, I'm not worshiping no matter how yeah. many songs I sing. It's like that. It, it, it's a powerful spiritual practice. And I contend, and I see this, you know, even for, for people who are not, don't self-identify in any form as Christians. I think writing finally is, is a spiritual spiritually transformative practice for them no matter what kind of you know brackets or language you put around how you describe the experience yeah. the, the, that because it is the uh creation coming out of chaos and new life coming out of that like that you know that that's everything and i i am coming to see more and more like just what a lifeline that is um in terms of my relationship with god if i'm not writing my soul's not alive now that doesn't mean there might not be seasons there are where i might strategically or just that I just might need to go quiet, yeah. but generally speaking, man, I just do it. And it's funny, like for a long time, I kind of judged myself for this, like in more recent years. And I, I, I'm saying, I'm going to say this out loud, even though I feel a little embarrassed about it, you know, three or four times last year, like consecutively where I was speaking random places, people introduced me half tongue in cheek as the, you know, the Twitter pastor people call, well, of course I don't <laughs> call myself that that's not like a handle, but that is something that's got thrown around because I think it's become such a common practice. Like if something just kind of bubbles up, that feels yeah. right. I don't want to write a, a whole blog or a Facebook. I'll just throw out like these sure. tweets. And, you know, rather than feeling bad about that, it's like, you know, yeah, I feel like at this point, that really does come out of the overflow of, of my connection with God. Or even overflow is not always the right word. I think sometimes where it kind of starts from, like I need to get that. So I just, you know, I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. It's like, you know, yeah. I, 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 I'm sure there, I know there are plenty of pitfalls to social media and blah, blah, blah. But I like, I mean, it's just, it's a way. It, we were able to connect. Oh, absolutely, that's right. So we there did. we go. We did. That's and that's face to face, real. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's like I just kind of like I've, I do feel like the Holy Spirit is at work, like in those things. And I think so. Whatever form it takes, you know. Yeah. And then I'll go back and compile those later, bring them together, and I love it too because then that can sometimes like capturing emotion or something very much in real time, as opposed to so I don't know. I just but it, it, it's just it's so interesting. I definitely feel like if I never published another book again. I would have to I would have to write just as much yeah. because I feel like there's just now again in terms of encountering God, understanding myself. You know, uh, one of my mentors, uh, Stanley Harwas at Duke, uh, I studied there, and like he he talked about how like you know he doesn't know what he believes until he writes. I discover what wow, I believe that's good. through writing, and I feel like that's absolutely true for me. A lot of things I don't I don't even know what I think. I don't have any idea what's going on here until that constructive act of creation yeah. you know, starts to make some kind of sense of it. 
And I think that's important for any person. Like, in a, man, if a person's like, if they say, I hate the name of Jesus, I'll never step the name of church. Like, please, please write. And please write about your life. And please write about your emotions. And write about, like, your story. Because I think, like, there's something fundamentally salvific. It's, it's, it's redemptive to write. You know, the, the, yeah. to find language for things, giving any kind of sense of, like, order and meaning to your story. That's, that's so significant for any person. Well, I, I think until you can find some words that you just are driven by these forces and you don't know why you just project onto people right. like your, your anger, your resentments, all this stuff. And you, it just begins affecting the way you see the world because really, um, I, I think that's another fascinating thing about Genesis that, you know, the, or, or, or John, you know, that, that word is, is associated with, you know, that God was the word, but, yes. but he was also the light, you know, that there is mm-hmm. that, that, that putting words, you know, telling our story, writing things down, learning how to um, focus in on some of these things and describe these experiences. I mean, it's a, it's amazing to me how many times, like, like I can think about a memory that happened in the past, but if I will sit down and actually start exploring that memory through writing, I'll find, wait a second, there's a lot more to that. And once I start putting words to it, it's like, well, now... It, it becomes illuminating. It's yeah. like there's light yeah. shining on it, and now I can either deal with this thing or not, but now I can't deny that it exists. It, right. it, it's, it's real to me, and, uh, and, and I get that's probably why a lot of people don't re- resist the whole process of, totally. of, of introspection and writing, um, but at but the same time, I, I can certainly see. And, and for me, you know, a lot of this would be more songwriting. I, I still do a, a good bit of writing, but... but the songwriting process is works that way for me too, because it's like, um, I feel something stirring for such a long, and then finally, if I can get quiet and just yeah. sit down and put words to it, like now these things become real to me in a, in yeah. a different way. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, I think that's a great process that, that anybody, uh, can benefit from. There's a very real way, as much as I think it's always redemptive, I understand why people are afraid to write, afraid to like create, because I think I think writing is illumination. It is a way of bring of of shedding light. And so we're afraid of what we might see. I think that's we're yeah, afraid of what we might it. see. But you know, but, but that becomes so and I you know, this language is used a lot in scripture, this idea of walking in light. And first John that language we walk in the light as he is in the light. Fellowship one another in the blood of Jesus cleanses from all of our sins. You know, there's. I think that whole idea. It's not about walking in sinlessness. It's not about walking in in some kind of perfection. Walking in like full exposure. Because the, I really do think we we deep down we desire to be fully seen and fully known. We desire to have not in front of everybody necessarily, but we want to have our secrets aired out. We don't want to have to hold anything back or hold it in. Like we we crave a certain kind of exposure. I think so much more than we know, but yeah. we fear it because even if even if nobody else sees it but me. You know, to to write these things down, to put some of this stuff on paper in any kind of form, means I'm going to get confronted with my true self, and I might have to see things about my heart, my life, my story that that are not comfortable to to acknowledge. But it's yeah. but 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 but, and this is where I I do connect the process always to spirituality. I believe that God's only intention in bringing anything to light is for the sake of healing. Like God brings yeah. things that are in darkness for the sake of healing, not to shame, not to embarrass, never. Always for the sake of healing and wholeness. So if you, so if we believe that, if you come to trust, there is something, someone may be out there 
that whatever we walk in like light and truth is kind of conspiring to, to bring healing and wholeness out of that and to bring beauty, even when we're writing or, or creating something that's all about messiness, you know, that confidence, I think, changes everything. Wow, that's really good, man. That's really good. So you got another book coming up? Speaking <laughs> of writing? I'm writing it right now, and I meant to be done the last couple of weeks, and I'm not done. But it's really around that whole, I, I don't even have a... Because you're talking too much now. Talk. I am talking too damn much. That's you should right. be writing right I now. I really... <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the whole Emmaus Road thing I was talking about is what it's about. I don't even have a good working title. We've gone back and forth on that. But I really, it, that feels like just uh, something for the moment. This, you know, disciples who are kind of walking away from the holy places in despair and disillusionment. How is it that God is meeting them on that road? That's really what the book is about or trying to be about kind of using that as kind of a frame story for a lot of the kind of stories that I hear these days, everywhere I go, you know, and I feel like, man, people share things with me all the time. And I never, um, I never want to take this for granted. I don't take it for granted. Like it's just, there's just so much pain, just so much pain. And, yeah. uh, some people have so much pain in their church experiences. There's a lot of trauma out there. And, uh, you know, like, um, it's weird. I just, I did just turn 40 as we talked about this weekend. It's like, it's, it's funny because like, I've never had biological kids, but I feel like something has really in the last couple of years shifted me to where I no longer feel like I'm kind of like young guy climbing the ladder trying to make my way. And there's this, there's this fatherly thing kicking in of like, man, I want, I want sons and daughters of the church who've been alienated and hurt to like have a safe place. I want there to be yeah. a place for them. And I want to contend for a a place for them. If that means taking some hits sometimes, like whatever, but like I want to, whatever that, whatever that means, that's what I want to do. And I'm just finding that slowly, but surely I'm, I'm sure I'm not all the way there, but like I, my life is starting to be more oriented in that way. You yeah. know, what is it, what does it look like to try to use my life, my platform, whatever to carve out space for others, that kind of thing. Wow. That's cool. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great thing, man. It needs to be more of that. So your new book will, uh, when you, when you look at it, I really hope if I can get it done quickly enough, I'm still hopeful it could come out by the end of this year. Okay. That requires me booking it, which I'm trying to do. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping by the end of this calendar year. Now is writing something you wanted to do when you were younger or you just kind of fell, fell into it? I, I think it was kind of yes to both. I mean, I think I, I started writing. When I was so young, even just for fun, like creative. I yeah. think I always knew there was something, there was a spark there that felt right. You know, it was probably a, a good while before I knew that vocation is what I was supposed to do. But I think somewhere deep down, I kind of always knew that. And I'd like to think I'd always do it. I mean, I kind of, uh, you know, one of the things now, I feel like the more that my sense of God and my understanding of spirituality continues to broaden, I really want to create other kind of things. I absolutely yeah. want to write fiction. I absolutely like don't want to do everything within a certain sort of like Christian living yeah. box. I already feel like I'm a little bit, I'm not going to make myself out to be a renegade, but already what I do is very different for those sure. spaces, but I'm ready. I, I'm very eager to, you know, find whatever surprises might be there in terms of experimenting with other things. Once again, reasons I love like being in this part of the country, because I'm so, I'm so inspired by all the history and mythology of New Orleans and the culture's just rich. You know, it yeah. just kind of, you feel like you, you tap into something sure. a little older here. <laughs> so yeah, well, I look forward to to checking that out, and uh, yeah, I guess you know we got another thing to do, another podcast to do yes. uh, for you here Two in a little bit. Day. So I I get the fresh version of you. No, you're going to be like twice as fresh because now you've 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 
Well, you've, I mean, you've activated me. You've, this is a wonderful <laughs> conversation. And really, uh, our last few days of conversation. Because, yeah. you know, there really is a thing that happens, I think, like, you, just, you don't always have just when you have a real sense of kinship with another person. Like, oh, I recognize that person's soul. Yeah. And what I said about, like, even y'all's, you know, the worship at church, like, oh, man, that's authentic soul. Like, that's real. That's actual. <laughs> like, you know, so it's, it's been real good for me to be here and to get to do yeah. this. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we got to meet. And I definitely, yeah, I felt from our uh, first conversation a few weeks ago that, yeah, I think I think we got a lot in common and kind of uh, view the world in a similar way. So yeah. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, getting to talk more in the future and stuff. And you've got a podcast that uh, we're taping tonight called uh, "Son of a Preacher Man." Yes, and that's on iTunes and stuff. Yeah, and, and you're doing music tonight, I'm right? Do some, some music? Sure. Yeah, I'll do that. some. I don't know what I'm going to do, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll do something. And uh, but the people can hear it. The people will hear that out there too. Yeah, <laughs> the people. That's what the people want. We got to give the people what they want. And you're on Twitter as well, and you you got a website. Uh, yeah, JonathanMartinWords.com. Okay, website. And you got a blog on there and stuff too. I do, and like the big emphasis right now is like, it, which is all clear on the website. Uh, I've started doing like daily devotional reflections. People cool. can sign up for that on there if anybody's interested. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, uh, I, we'll, we'll go ahead and. Uh, wrap this one up and uh you know maybe uh down the road when you get ready for this next book we get another conversation that sounds great uh, anytime honored to be here i would do it as often as you'd want give you another excuse to come down to this part of the country and i you know i look for excuses so for sure (laughs) all right thanks jonathan thank you That was fun. So good to have Jonathan Martin uh, in, and I've, I've just really enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, to know one other only child out there who's uh, <laughs> in ministry. Because uh, being an only child can feel all alone sometimes. People don't understand you. We're, we're, we're strange, strange characters sometimes. But uh, yeah, hopefully I can get Jonathan back here uh, again before too long because I, I figure... Uh, much stuff as he had to say on this podcast i he's got a lot more things that i I think folks will find helpful and you know whether you're a a a christian or agnostic or atheist uh i I really do think uh anyone can benefit from many of the things uh that jonathan shared in here Uh, sitting down and contemplating your own journey putting words to what's going on in your own heart sitting with some of the questions and maybe even finding better questions so uh we all need better questions well, this concludes this episode. Uh, got another episode coming out uh, probably next week with New Orleans piano player, composer, uh, Loyola music director, Matt Lemler, who's got a new CD, a CD release coming out next week and uh, a healing concert. So it's real good stuff in that. Just uh, taped that interview yesterday. So uh, until next time. May all your conversations be extra crispy.